invite you to turn to Matthew 23 with me. Matthew 23, verse 13, begins a lengthy section of judgments against the scribes and the Pharisees. It stretches from verse 13 all the way to verse 36. The dominant word uh, in these verses is is woe. So I want to begin, before we even read it or pray, I just want to begin by giving you a word on woe. And a bit on blessing. A word on woes and a bit on blessing. The word woe is a cry of anguish or a declaration of horror. It appears about 40 times in the New Testament. The vast majority of the times it's describing the misery that is experienced now and in eternity by those who are under the wrath of God. In terms of what people experience in this life, woe is not something that a person decides to feel. It's not even something that painful circumstances brings to them. It's not talking about the the typical sufferings that we all endure in life. It's speaking about the judgment of God. Jesus says in John 16, and he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and he, when he comes, will convict the world of concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, he says, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So when there is true awareness of sin and righteousness and judgment, when somebody who does not know the Lord experiences that terror, it's because the Holy Spirit has been at work. Jesus doesn't say the the Spirit would convict everybody. He doesn't say he would convict everybody to the same degree. When, as Romans uh, 3.18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes, it's because the Spirit of God has simply left them as they are. He has left them in their dead, helpless state. It's important for us to recognize that the word woe, this cry of horror at impending judgment, is never, ever used of Christians, ever. Jesus bore the wrath of God for us. The opposite word of of woe is blessed, which is also used about 40 times in the New Testament. It describes the experience of being happy, of being favored, of being privileged. There are a few times when that word is used of earthly happiness, and appropriately so, but most of the time it speaks of the, the peace and joy that God has promised to his children in eternity and the comfort that that peace and joy, the comfort that that promise brings today. In that sense of eternal peace and joy and comfort because of the promises of God, the word blessed is never used of unbelievers. So these two words divide humanity. From Adam all the way to the end of the age, a person will either experience woe or 
uh, for eternity or blessing for eternity. Uh, So as I said, during this life, not every unbeliever will experience the terror of the judgment of come. Perhaps most never do. Every Christian has a taste of that fear. It's part of what brings us to the Lord in repentance. It's part of the recognition that we have sinned and that we are under the judgment of God. Remember the hymn Amazing Grace, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." But then it immediately says, "'And grace that fear relieved.'" So we are not under that terror. As far as eternity is concerned, every human being is either going to ex- either going to experience eternal woe under the judgment of God or eternal blessing in Christ. So when Jesus pronounces these woes as he does in this passage, he is pronouncing judgment on men who if they had spiritual sense would be in utter terror. Let's pray and we'll look at the word together. Father, I come to you in the midst of this week with its pressures, with its stresses, with its joys, and with its sorrows. There's been great blessing for some. There's been great sorrow for some. I ask for your blessing as we open your word together, that we would understand that I would be faithful as a steward of your word to your people and that all of us would be faithful having heard it and received it and that we would hear it with faith and a desire to glorify you in every way. So please help us by your spirit. And I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Jesus says in verse 13 of Matthew 23, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. The judgment is pronounced because they have barred the entry of the kingdom to people. The sense here is that they've locked the doors. They've erected a barricade. They've put up an obstacle. And Jesus says that they did that in two ways. They themselves did not enter into the kingdom. And they prevented others who wanted to enter in from entering in. So we're going to look at these. We're going to look at this passive obstruction that they created. Then we're going to look at the the active obstruction that they created. And then even though in this chapter Jesus doesn't turn it around in a positive sense of what we are to do, we're going to consider that. How do we create a passive encouragement and how do we create an active encouragement? So to begin with, they did not enter in. They created a passive obstruction. Woe to you, scribes and and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you yourselves do not enter in. The scribes and the Pharisees refused to enter the kingdom of heaven because they thought they were already there. They thought it was unnecessary. They were children of Abraham. They were utterly righteous by their own standards. They fully approved of themselves. As far as they were concerned, preaching of judgment had nothing to do with them. And they were essentially immune from the kind of preaching that reveals sin and brings about repentance. Their hearts were hard. They barricaded their own hearts. I want you to consider that these men had heard much of what Jesus had taught, if not most of what Jesus had taught. They had heard him expound on the the scriptures. 
they had heard the wisdom of his words. They had tried multiple times to overthrow that wisdom or to dispute it, and they were unable to do so. They couldn't answer him back. What that ultimately means is that they, they couldn't refute what he said. What he said was true, and it was right, and they didn't get it. What's more, they knew that he worked many, many miracles. Those miracles were not random good works. They were fulfillments of scripture. Isaiah 35 says that the Messiah, when he comes, would heal the, the blind, the deaf, the crippled, the mute. Jesus did all of those things, and he did more besides. <coughs> they saw with their own eyes that Jesus never harmed anyone. They, they knew that he set friend, sinners free. He healed the sick. He encouraged the discouraged. He fed multitudes on multiple occasions. Jesus did command sinners to repent. He rebuked false teachers and their teachings. But to the humble and repentant, Jesus was never anything but kind and merciful. He cries out at the end of Matthew 11, all of you, come to me, all of you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is gentle and my burden is light and you will have rest for your souls. In spite of all the evidence that he provided in his words and his actions, the scribes and the Pharisees refused him. They rejected him. They repudiated him. And here's the point of them not entering in. These men were wrong in their traditions. They were godless in their traditions. Nevertheless, they had a huge amount of influence in Israel. And what they did influenced other people. Their rejection of Christ led others to reject him. They modeled unbelief and rebellion. Their denial of him led others to deny him. Their rejection of Christ created a passive obstacle to, to those who were curious. As they stood by and they watched Jesus and they wondered if they should take a step closer or reach out to him or think about what he said and then observe the scribes and the Pharisees, the experts, the theologians, the pastors of the synagogues shake their heads and cast Jesus away and turn away. And those people said, well, there must not be anything there for us. And Jesus says they're responsible for that. So they did not enter in themselves. That created a passive obstruction. And then they kept others out. They created an active, active obstruction. You do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So we can think about the, the challenges that they made to Jesus, their confrontations of him. Virtually all of those challenges and confrontations were public. There's only one time I know of where, where any one of the scribes or the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Herodians came to Jesus privately, and that was Nicodemus in John 3, and he didn't come to challenge. He came in hunger. He came in humility. In order to sow seeds of doubt, the scribes and Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples in Matthew 9 why he ate with tax collectors and sinners. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Have you ever thought about why he would do that? Your master eats with wicked people. Is, is he okay with that? Does he, does he agree with what they do? He's awfully friendly with them. 
They like him an awful lot. They ask that question in order to cast doubt. In order to sow seeds of doubt, they publicly accused Jesus of casting out demons by the prince of demons. They did that at least twice, Matthew 9 and Matthew 12. That may have been a more regular occurrence. The crowd is standing there. A man is brought, a woman is brought, a child is brought, and demons. Jesus speaks to the demon. He casts it out. The people are amazed. And then the, the scribes and the Pharisees say, ah, oh, he's doing that by the power of Satan. And somebody standing at the back of the crowd says, oh, I don't want anything to do with Satan. And they leave. In order to cast seeds of doubt, they approach Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath during church, as it were, to ask him if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. You have people in the synagogue, men and women, or men and women. They separated sides, but I don't know what sides. And they're listening perhaps to Jesus teach, and here comes the scribes and the Pharisees. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Not because they were curious or concerned, but in order to get those men and those women to wonder if Jesus could really reliably interpret Scripture. Maybe he doesn't know what he's talking about. In order to sow seeds of doubt, they publicly demanded that Jesus give them a miraculous sign, Matthew 12 and Matthew 16. We want to see a sign from you. What for? Well, we want to see a sign from you that would confirm who you are. Back in in Matthew chapter 4, before we see Jesus teaching, although he's already been teaching, Matthew writes, and Jesus was going throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him spread throughout all Syria, not the nation Syria. That whole area was the Roman province of Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, epileptics, uh, demoniacs, paralytics, and he healed them. And after thousands of healings, thousands of healings, they come to Jesus and say, we want to see a sign. As though he hadn't done anything. As though he hadn't said anything worth looking at. As though he hadn't done anything that was persuasive. Encouraging the people in the crowd to cleanse Jesus' slate as far as they were concerned. Yesterday doesn't matter. Today matters. Prove yourself today. That they did even more than these public confrontations. They agreed, John 9 says, among themselves to excommunicate anyone who believed in Jesus, and then they made that publicly known. John 9, of course, is where Jesus heals the man who had been born blind. He not only had some kind of an issue with his eyes, but his brain had never developed the the the, the vision circuitry. It had never been trained and taught and exercised. But Jesus heals him and he gives him sight. The Pharisees are beside themselves. They go to this man's parents and explain and ask, how did this happen? And they're so afraid of the Pharisees that say, don't ask us, we don't know, he's a man, he can answer for himself. 
And they go to the man, and the man ultimately confesses Christ, so they put him out of the synagogue. In John 12, John writes, Nevertheless, even many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. And where does that fear come from? Jesus, or Matthew tells us, or John tells us, they love the glory of men rather than the glory of God. It's the fear of men. It's the, the love of glory, the love of human praise, and the fear of human disapproval is the same thing. It's the head and tail of the same coin. I promise you that the person who is afraid of human disapproval loves human approval and vice versa. So after three years of public ministry, three years of teaching, three years of miracles, three years of blessing and never harming, three years of, of raising the dead and casting out demons and feeding multitudes and exercising authority over nature and authority over the human soul, Jesus has had it with these men. And he pronounces a judgment on them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people by not entering in yourselves and by not allowing those who would enter to go in. For our part, Jesus, again, doesn't turn to his disciples then and give them the alternative. But I would say he's been doing that for three years with them. He's been teaching them the truth. But for our sake this morning, let's think about this. Let's think about what it means to open the kingdom to others. First of all, entering in fully ourselves, where the, the scribes and the Pharisees put up passive barriers to the kingdom, we need to put up passive encouragement to others to come to Christ by entering fully into the kingdom of God. And what do I mean by entering fully into the kingdom of God? Many of us have lived our lives, and perhaps some are still there, in kind of a no-man's land in kind of a spiritual demilitarized zone. We've been saved, we've been born again, but we haven't let go of the world. We're still looking to the world for satisfaction. And so a non-believer will say to themselves, so-and-so says she's a Christian, but she doesn't live like a Christian, she doesn't talk like a Christian, she doesn't behave like a Christian. I would only know that she's a Christian because it came up once in conversation and then she changed the subject. I guess being a Christian is like being part of a club that you got talked into joining but you really don't enjoy. That is a passive obstacle. That's a passive obstacle. And I'll just say this. An immature worldly Christian is probably the most unhappy person on earth. They've been delivered out of this present evil age. The world can no longer satisfy them. Like our friend Steve at our church in Creighton, he had COVID twice. The second time, he lost his ability to taste, which changed everything. Because now you're just left with texture. And maybe the thing that tasted really good has a really nasty texture when there's no taste. I can't imagine that something would have no taste at all. 
That person has been delivered from this present evil age. It's unable to please them, but they're unwilling to let it go. And on the other hand, they've been joined to Jesus. They've been joined to his church, but they really don't find much in him or his people to hold their interests. So they live in this unhappy, unsatisfying middle ground, this scorched earth. You ever open the refrigerator? This happens. I do this all the time. I don't know why. You open the refrigerator looking for a snack, and you stand there for a couple minutes, and you look, and there's just nothing in it that you want to eat. So you close the door, and you come back 15 minutes later because maybe something changed. That's this person. The world doesn't have anything for me, but tomorrow they go, oh, well, maybe something changed. We've all done that. If you're in Christ, you've done that. And over time, you learn there's no point in looking because nothing has changed. That description is true for many of the New Testament churches. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says to them, do all things without grumbling or disputing because they were still grumbling and disputing. So that you will be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. They're Christians, but they're not yet blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, that's the world in which they live and the world that they're trying to be satisfied by. It isn't going to satisfy you. Let it go. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. They're still shining as lights, but their light isn't as bright as it could be. Holding fast the word of life, which they're holding only loosely because they're trying to hold two things at one time. And then he says, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to boast because I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. He says that because there's a possibility always that a worldly, uninterested Christian may not be a Christian. And that's a horrifying thought. We are saved by faith, not by works. We are not saved by our enthusiasm for Christ. We are not saved by our excitement for Christ. I am not saying that. But the faith that saves is not just the presumption that I'm okay with God. It's an act of daily faith in Christ. And if it never goes anywhere over the course of somebody's life, if it never produces satisfaction in him, and if they continually go to the word, they can't reasonably die with any assurance. I'm not saying they're not a Christian. I don't have that authority. And I wouldn't want to say that they're not a Christian. I would want to say that they're just an immature Christian. But there's a point where we have to be willing to share the gospel with religious people who are good but not godly. That's the Philippians. The Thessalonians are on the other side, I think. Paul says, our gospel did not come to you in word only. It came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. So the Thessalonians heard the gospel, came to Christ, and then said, you know something? Jesus and his apostles are the standard. That's what we want to be like. They weren't like that to start. But they saw that as the standard. They saw that as the, as the goal to pursue. 
having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. How should a pagan come to Christ and then live as a Christian? Look at the Thessalonians. They're the model. Don't look at the Philippians. Look at the Thessalonians. For the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you. That, that phrase sounded forth means echoed forth, reverberated. It's like the sound system at a rock concert. It just blasts out and keeps echoing. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Paul didn't need to tell anybody what the Thessalonians were in Christ or what they were like. They did that by their own faithfulness. Paul would go to a new town and say, let me tell you about the Thessalonians. And they'd say, don't need to. We've heard. We've heard. A joyful, devoted Christian is not necessarily going to attract people to Christ. A joyless, uncommitted Christian sets up a passive barrier to people. We don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. We want to fully enter in. We want to experience everything that God wants to do in our lives in terms of sanctification and holiness and joy. And commitment and satisfaction and contentment in Christ. That's what we want. That's the passive side. The active encouragement side, we could just say, is evangelism. The scribes and the Pharisees actively discouraged anyone from entering the kingdom of heaven. They argued against Jesus. They threatened people who wanted to believe in him. We are to actively encourage unbelievers to come to Christ and put their faith in him. The whole world was lost in the darkness of sin. The light of the world is Jesus. There's the gospel. In, in two lines, there's the gospel. That's the gospel call. The world lies in the grip of the evil one. It is dead in sin. It's under the judgment of God. But the light of the world is Jesus. He cries out, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's evangelism. Go to Jesus. Look to Jesus. See him on his cross. Trust him. Give your life to him. Evangelism is, is often in, intimidating and frightening to Christians, mostly because we have the wrong idea of what it means. Evangelism is not arguing, debating, persuading, answering every question, silencing every objection. Evangelism is pointing people to the Savior, Jesus Christ, through the gospel, which is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It can be this simple as what we see in John chapter 1. There's three examples in John chapter 1 that every single one of us can do, including the children. John the Baptist is standing with two of his disciples, and he sees Jesus walk by, and he says to them, Behold! And behold there doesn't mean behold. Behold there means look, the Lamb of God. And they followed him. What did John know about the gospel other than Jesus was the Lamb of God? Nothing. What will Jesus do on the cross? John didn't have the faintest idea. It hadn't happened. What about the healings and the miracles? That wouldn't start until John had been arrested. But he knew there's the Lamb of God. The two who heard him, one of them was Andrew. 
So John says one of the, John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, says one of the two who heard John the Baptist speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which, is tra- which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Bringing him to Jesus didn't mean he prayed the sinner's prayer with him. It means he literally brought him to Jesus. What did John or what did Andrew know about Jesus? Nothing. He just knew he was the Lamb of God. He actually had a physical Jesus to bring, bring Peter to. We don't have that. We have scripture. We have tracts. There's a bunch of them on the third shelf down there. You're welcome to take them. We can give people links to websites. We can give people links to YouTube pages and just say, here. Here's John MacArthur, here's John Piper, here's Paul Washer, here's Steve Lawson, here's Pastor Greg, here's whoever, here's the gospel. Anybody can do that. The third one apparently was Philip. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And we have the first opposition to Jesus. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip shrugged and walked away. No, Philip said to him, come and see. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip doesn't know. He doesn't know. He doesn't have an answer. But he can say, well, come and see. We can point to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We can Tell others that Jesus is the Christ, the one whom God sent as Savior of the Lord. If anyone argues, can any good thing come out of Nazareth, we can say, come and see. Can Jesus forgive my sin? Come and see. Can Jesus deliver me from this? Come and see. Can Jesus give me hope? Come and see. Every single one of us can do that, including the little ones. Come and see. Come and see. What about their questions and objections? What about questions we can't answer? Come and see. Now, I want you to imagine this, that you have a close friend, and they tell you that over the past several days, they've had some really weird episodes. Their vision goes blurry, and the side of their face goes numb, and they slur their words, and they have trouble keeping their balance, and then it clears up. And they ask you what you think. Your answer, hopefully, would be, you need to go to the ER now. Why? What is it? Well, I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but it sounds like you're having many strokes, and that could be a major stroke. Well, how do you know? Do you know my heart? Do you know my mind? Have you seen inside my brain? We get those questions from people. How dare you judge me? Here's the response. I can't diagnose or fix your problem, but I know enough to know that you have a problem. And I care enough to try to send you to somebody who can give you some answers. That's evangelism. That's evangelism. I was reminded this morning, I think it's in 2 Kings, the Syrian army had a general named Naaman. And Naaman, unfortunately, was a leper. He had a slave girl who was a Hebrew, and she said, oh, if my master was in Israel, the prophet there 
could do something about this. So Naaman goes to the king of Syria, and the king of Syria writes a letter to the king of Israel saying, I'm sending my leprous general to you for your prophet to heal. And the king of Israel gives the answer that all of us should give. Am I God that I can give life or death? That's, that's our part of, of evangelism right there. Am I God that I can give you life? No. Am I God that I can cause you to perish under the judgment of God? No. No. Just ask and answer that question. Am I God to give somebody life and death? No. But we can tell sinners, look to Christ on the cross. Go to him. Trust in him. Learn of him. The one who says, no, that's stupid. I don't want to do it. There's your answer. The one who says, well, how do I do that? Get him a Bible. You can go on Amazon and probably buy a 10-pack of little pocket Bibles for dollars. You can have tracts for free. They're over there. I've seen evangelistic iPhone apps where you can just walk somebody through it on the phone. So each of us who knows Christ can increasingly live faithful, faithfully in him and we can give passive encouragement to those who don't know the Lord. We can repent of our own sins. We can learn more of him each day, trust him more each day, love him more each day. We can live as a positive example of what it means to be a, a reborn sinner, somebody who was dead and helpless and hopeless, but now is no longer dead and helpless and hopeless. I have hope in Christ. We can do that, and we can learn to live a joyful life in Christ in spite of the things we suffer. And each of us can point others to him actively. We can certainly tell others what Jesus has done for us, but that's not the gospel. Your testimony is not the gospel. Your testimony is, is the story of what the gospel did in your life, but it's not the gospel. They need to know what the gospel is. But we can learn the, the elements of the gospel in a few minutes. We can learn Bible verses in a few minutes, or we can write them down in the front of a Bible. Open up your Bible to the first blank page. Write two headings there. The gospel for the atheist. The gospel for the religionist. And write down the verses that will help you share the gospel with an atheist. What are they? Google them. Look them up. Talk to me later. Maybe we'll talk about that tonight. It's not rocket science. Point them to Jesus. And then write down the gospel for the religionist, the person who says, I'm good enough. I'm a good person. That applies whether they're a good unsaved Baptist, a Roman Catholic, a Methodist, a Hindu, whatever it is. There's only kinds of, two kinds of sinners in the world. There's a kind of sinner who says there is no such thing as God. And there's a kind of sinner who says there is God, but I'm good enough on my own. Don't make it more complicated than it is. And you can do that and write down the verses in the front of your Bible. Well, I'd be ashamed if I didn't have them memorized. Then memorize them. It's hard to memorize. Then write them down. It's, it's, it's not hard to do. As, as we bring this home, if you've been hesitant about fully entering the kingdom, I urge you and plead with you to fully, in, fully enter in. Let the world go. It, it will not satisfy you. It will not make you happy. And I know that. I know that it has not satisfied you 
up to this point. So let it go. Find your joy and peace in Christ. Now, I, I, I give you a caveat, buyer beware, right? If you determine I am going to let the world go and not trust it to satisfy me anymore, there's going to be a time when you're going to be unsettled because you haven't learned to be satisfied in Christ. You're going to have to walk that journey out to learn how to be joyful in him and to learn how to be satisfied in him. But as long as you're clinging to the world, you, you won't. You won't. We put training wheels on a kid's bike. And I, I suppose it's possible that some kids ride with training wheels and then they pop the training wheels off and they just ride. But I suspect that there's a, a little bit of a transition period where they biff a couple of times because they just didn't realize the training wheels weren't there. Don't let that get in your way. Devote yourself to loving Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your affections will follow. Your affections will follow. And I urge you to learn how to share the gospel in a brief biblical way. You can certainly urge sinners to come to Jesus and learn from him. You can give them links and that kind of thing. But in a couple of minutes, you can learn the principles of evangelism and a few verses and have them ready in some form to explain what the gospel is and why it matters. What if you explain it and it isn't enough for them? Remember the king of Israel. Am I God that I can give them life? You can't make them hungry. You can't satisfy them. You can't scratch that itch. Every one of us who have shared the gospel with other people know that most of the time those efforts just seem to go nowhere because it's not up to us. It's up to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Our job is to plant the seed. Let's pray. Father, each one of us have been disappointed in the world over and over again. And yet we so often go back to see if it's offering something new. We all know that nothing the world offers will bring lasting contentment or satisfaction because our new birth has permanently uh, changed our taste for life. So I ask that you would forgive us for not looking for our heart's desire in you, in your word, in your people. I ask that you would restore to us the joy of your salvation and increase that joy. I ask, Lord, that you would give us the courage and the hope to share the gospel with others and to point people to Jesus so that we, unlike the Pharisees, would have fully entered in and that we would be those who encourage others to come and believe. And we give you thanks for this in Jesus' precious name. If you stand, let's sing together.